in this, the closing talk of the retreat with you today, I, I would like to speak about the Dharma, the teachings about reality in the daily life situation. And as I sometimes do, I take a particular aspect of, the, of daily life and focus on that. And in this with you today, I would like to speak from two aspects. <clears throat> One is some uh, observations of my uh, visits here to the States and generally what I uh, sense through the different um, channels that come to me. And the uh, um, other is um, some of the ways and means that might be um, explored with regard to the, the daily life and particularly through um, peace through cooperation. When I um, arrived here some 12 days ago, just as we were landing, it was a British uh, Airways flight from London to uh, Boston, the pilot said to us, he said, you are now arriving at Logan International Airport, Boston. You have just completed the safest part of your journey. <laughs> and it kind of brought from us um, a collective gasp. <laughs> And we all looked around at each, each other and there were a few uneasy smiles as we peered out of the window. And it's a little bit of a reflection and, uh, of, our, of the times that we live in. And I sometimes have the thought with uh, my visits here to the States that the, the States is in a very general way, and all the contradictions and failings of generalities, is at one of the lowest points in its history, one of the saddest periods of the times. And this shows, shows to me in countless numbers of ways, and I would just like to just express one or two of them. One which stands out in my mind very clearly and visibly is that it took place last December. Last December, and I'm speaking also as a former journalist and one who has uh, reported in my uh, early 20s in different places in uh, um, Europe and West Asia and uh, India and so forth that something took place here in the States in December in which General Electric um, took over the major TV and radio broadcasting company. And in the space of a very short period of time, there were some major takeovers, another by this very questionable 
person, uh, Rupert Murdoch from Australia. And General Electric and other major companies, and particularly General Electric, has of course a particularly vested view of the world. And this reflects in its manufacturing of nuclear reactors, its massive production of military equipment, and all the interests which are inherent within such a structure, such a large corporate structure. And so what I feel I have been seeing, and just in my readings here at uh, IMS, is quite noticeably, and that is a reflection of it, a massive, unparalleled deterioration in press freedom, the like of which I have not seen in any visit to America. And this was particularly shown uh, to me when I looked at the, um, the Sunday edition a couple of days ago of the New York Times, which years ago in the past is, doesn't have a connection with the present. Years ago, there was an image amongst us that New York Times was a reasonably conservatively liberal kind of newspaper. And I looked at the New York Times and it seemed to me to be completely filled with advertising, fashion, cuisine, um, travel articles, um, business profits and opportunities. And throughout the whole of this very heavyweight newspaper, there wasn't a single serious analysis of the tragedy that took place in the bombing of Libya. There were some commentaries here and there, and the whole tone of the paper seemed to be primarily, and to a very large extent, devoted to trivia. And what happens when the newspaper world is in that pathetic condition is that ordinary people do not have access to fact, to truth. And this is so prevalent in the time because the deterioration of press freedom means that government and newspaper proprietors who are reflecting government channel foremost their particular views and opinions and one sees basically that the party line is going down from the top down to the people in their ordinary everyday lives. And this is clearly, clearly apparent to me. And one might ask, one might ask, well, it's Christopher, but what does this have to do with Dharma and daily life? Dharma, as we were discussing in our dialogue together yesterday evening, is essentially and above all else the teachings which deal with the realities of daily life. And 
and seeing these realities, personal, social and international, there is the possibility for deep concern, compassion and the action to flow out of that. But if one is receiving day in and day out a perverted and distorted view of it, it either leaves one feeling incapable or it leaves one imitating and identifying with the various propaganda which is being put out as gross and as manipulative as anything which one sees and hears about in other parts of the world. And I just want to quote one piece from, from James Reston. Just that one, one line where he says, in over 40 years in Washington, I quoted this the other day at um, Cambridge at the talk there, he says, in over 40 years in Washington, I can't remember a period when so much obvious nonsense, even so many distortions of fact, have gone by unchallenged or been dismissed with scarcely more than a whisper by the public. When that happens, the democratic processes of life, and Dharma is concerned with all of that, is truly undermined. Truly undermined. Because democracy relies on the ability, not just to be able to vote every four years, because if that was the case, America couldn't, couldn't be conceived of being democratic when 50% of the people only vote, and amongst the poor, less than 30% of them vote because they feel the situation is purposeless. But it relies upon people, ordinary people, like yourself and myself and others, to influence the unsatisfactory and unjust and insensitive actions and behaviour of government. And with this growing situation of corporate America and the consolidation and the centralizing of power, it goes more and more with the com in conflict with all Dharma teachings, all teachings of compassion and concern. And the tragedy which one feels in America when one speaks to order, very ordinary, everyday Americans, we haven't had the opportunity that uh, you and I have to explore, that there's, the view is almost emerging, and this is surely the major sadness, that if one starts speaking about the poor and the underprivileged and those who are denied their human rights and so forth, it's almost being conceived as first as being unpatriotic, because to talk about those things, one must be a communist, a Marxist, a Marxist sympathizer, or whatever. Of such force is the propaganda that when one speaks of compassion, one is put into the terror bracket of being, if not a terrorist, uh, a, a sympathizer to the, to the behavior of Moscow or something. Such a view is become predominant here, here in the States. 
And I think it's, again, for all of us to be aware of the ways and means that we are subjected to this day in and day out and to find ways in our life and at the collective level to express our concerns. There's no guarantee that this situation will bottom out. No guarantee of this at all. And rather similarly, and I think there's many areas for discussion and exploration at the collective and the grassroots level. Just the beginning of the retreat for two or three days with a friend here, we walked um, around some of the, the bookshops in Cambridge. And Cambridge is, you know, it's regarded here and the world over as a major, a major centre for inquiry. For, real, for serious analysis of situations and is an area where countless numbers of young people uh, gravitate towards primarily because of Harvard. And similarly on the West Coast, I've often said a number of times to friends that in Berkeley that uh, Telegraph Avenue is my favourite street in the world. And Whenever I uh, go, go there, I always ensure to, to spend a day in Telegraph uh, uh, Avenue, hanging in the shops, going to the bookshops, feeling the vibrations of the, the people there, the atmosphere. And in a, another lifetime, Berkeley and it was, um, was uh, as a, a pacifist and uh, activist, but Berkeley was a mecca. And, uh, and, and in walking and, and looking, you know, but when one goes into the, the, the bookshops and there's a certain feeling, I don't know what it is when I look through the titles and the literature, if one takes the world of novels, for example, it seems a massive proliferation of junk literature. Massive. It's on romance, on these endless, repetitive, tedious Dallas-like stories of family sagas and all the obsessions and sex life that goes on in it. You know, it it's one long yawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and with it, unfortunately, too, there's a kind of introverted kind of view. And of course, put that all together, plus the Rambo, Rambo culture, which goes, goes along uh, with it. It, it. it keeps this inwardness, this sense of insularity here, and a kind of peculiar sense that we're, everything is all right, America is safe. And, and there needs to be, I feel, a much more global view, a much more expansive view of things. And one of the ways that that can be po possible is through people moving out of their country for a period of time. It's not always possible, I, I know and realize and acknowledge that. But instead of thinking of, you know, of sun, sea and, and sand, perhaps the go-to places where, where one can experience a little bit more of something real and everyday 
and actual and other people's lives and, and connect with that. Whether it's in the Caribbean or Central America, whether it's Eastern Europe, whether it's Asia, whether it's South Africa or whatever. So that one has more clear and direct experience of the world rather than relying on the propaganda which is so heavily prejudiced and biased in terms of corporate and government interests here. And, and, and I think once in coming to that awareness by ourselves, and this is where I speak of a collective peace and collective working together, by ourselves it's, it's quite hopeless. And we have to find ways and means of cooperating and working together to really work with alternatives, really work with radically different ways of living and being. And that's an enormous, an enormous challenge to, to any of us. And so what we're, the period of time that we're, we're living through seems to me a period of time in which Unfortunately, spirituality and psychotherapy for all its validity and the insights that it offer, offers has within the context of it a major danger. And it's so major that it can feed in to the whole system. And the major danger of it is that it can reinforce the me syndrome. And it's this me syndrome which creates its own blindness. And there has to be, by necessity and by urgence, urgency, a moving out of that and for all of us collectively to find ways and means to explore change. And every area and a region of life has to be addressed. I just mentioned literature, a more global, a more international expression of literature. In non-fiction, a more serious um, analysis. There's a real shortage of, a, of, of analysis of situations here in the States. And um, in that re respect, um, Europe in terms of green philosophy and relationship to environment and, and analysis which is much more familiar in the Marxist uh, tradition um, need, that needs to be ex developed more. It's hard to find the literature in, in these kind of areas. In other areas of working on oneself, psychotherapy, spirituality, alternatives, America is marvelously rich. There's been a tremendous outpouring, but there's shortcomings in, in these other areas. Another area is the whole field of the arts. The arts have hardly been used anywhere as a resource and as a means for communicating compassion. I haven't even touched on this area, I would say. And for people who are involved in the arts, whether professionally or whether in the form of leisure, need to address how can my expression of the arts communicate my concerns and my compassion. 
and, and that's to channel that and to make that a vehicle so that it's not just under the old dictum of art for art's sake because arts for art's sake has become monstrously corrupted. Picture cannot be seen for itself in its beauty, beauty and in its subtlety. It can only be seen for what it's worth. That's corruption. Nothing is pure corruption. And, in, so in, and similarly too with facilities and centres also need to be such where there's an openness and a receptivity for the input to go into it. And if one takes, for example, uh, here I am IMS, that over the years it's been a, a marvellous and beautiful facility for people to come to practice. It's possibly, with terms of numbers, nowhere like it. It a, has a tremendous reputation, and the lovely thing about it is that people don't just come because of so much maybe this teacher or that teacher, although some do of course, but the very the centre itself has a, um, in spirituality, has a, um, an international reputation, strong enough in itself, established over just over 10 or 12 years, to the degree that people come because they know there will be teachings here, there will be serious practice taking place here, and the very reputation of it is generating here, there and everywhere. And in that, yet, for any place, any facility to stand still in any way and say we've made it, means very easily, as frequently happens with any progressive initiative such as the centre here, that it can, and we have to watch ourselves with this too, we can get frozen in time. And what was some taking place in one way may have to undergo changes to keep in contact. And sometimes that may not be dramatic changes, but any kind of activity which you and I are connected with, are working with in our life, constantly needs to be the looking at and the inquiry. How can this evolve? How can this develop? What are more skillful ways so that we don't keep relying on the past, on the policy, on the way other people have done that? And, and that all belongs to this field of true here and nowness, here and now as it actually is, just as our practice has been uh, um, emphasizing. So it's not only a personal here and nowness, it's a, a social here and nowness. You know, sometimes on retreats, um, um, come the last morning of the, re of the retreat, um, instead of playing um, a meditative kind of music, um, sometimes I'll play uh, rock. And um, so it might be Stevie Wonder, uh, it might be Sting, it might be uh, uh, Talking Heads or, or whatever. And some, uh, only because sometimes there are people who are working and connecting with young people. And young people are so much influenced and continue to be with music and the nature of music. And one is still a product of the 60s, thinking that everybody's listening to Simon and Garfunkel. And <laughs> 
you know, as far as music goes, they're in the Middle Ages. You know, the, 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 the music scene has, has truly moved on. And, and, and again, it's connecting, particularly if one is working with, working with teenagers or working with a, in a high school or whatever. And it's to see those kind of changes which are, which are taking place. And similarly with the, the centre, the Aidy's uh, trip to uh, Russia, she comes here regularly, and the photographs that, which are up in the dining hall here in the, in the centre. And when one walk, walks around uh, the, the centre, there is a tremendous proliferation of art, but it's, it's all art having its roots, you know, in, in centuries ago. And, and, and it's, it, it, it's dated, truly dated. And of course there is a place for that and uh, a value for that. But there needs to be, if there's going to be art, let the art be more here and now as well. Let there be... David's going to get a letter because he's on the board. Um, <laughs> let, there be, let, there be photo, let there be photographs of, of Guatemalan refugees, of uh, peace marches, of um, people doing their practices in different situations, of actions which are taking place, of compassionate work in soup kitchens, you know, or for the dying, or whatever it might be. Let that be, be communicated through, through the arts, through the photographs. Let there be a, a library of some of these rather beautiful and sensitive documentary films which are made. Which, and so there's a video library and people perhaps at the end of the retreat can, can watch a film and be, and be in touch and, and uh, connected with. Let that be part of it. And that doesn't require any affiliation to any particular organisation or political group or anything like that. It's saying, this is here and now. Compassion is here and now. Let some of these representations through art, through music, through um, film and so forth touch us so it touches our compassion and our concern. Let there be a frequency of information, of names and addresses of groups and organisations really be available which says something uh, about the work that is taking place so that people can go and, and know if they're interested, what to do, where to go, who to connect with, etc., etc. Now, all of this could be an, a growing and developing awareness of that IMS is not just observation of breathing, it's also observation of life. And of course, it has taken years for the centre to, to find its rhythm and flow and, and harmony between staff teachers, board, and, and that I feel more recent times is really flowing and coming together, having gone through, the centre's gone many, through many struggles and more meetings than I can count. And that's part of the process and I feel it's ready now to make further steps in, its, in awareness. And just as I use, the, uh, this, you, as I use uh, IMS in the States as a, an expression of that, I also want to um, equally emphasize in terms of whatever kind of group or organization or people that we have contact with.
constant awareness, constant inquiry, constant exploration, constant asking and being with and working with the powers to be. And all of this, as ordinary everyday people, gives a certain, in a way, affirmation to existence, to our existence, and shows that practice has nothing to do with being insular or withdrawn. Nothing whatsoever to do it, to do with that. And as I say, this is part part of the exploration. And I think as you, as David said to me when we were looking at one of those lovely photographs of those Russian children watching the puppet show and that, that child pointing the f- finger there, and David said, "Oh, it's." Um, lots of little Nashonas, named my daughter, and Kanti is the name of uh, David's son. You know, and, that, and that's what it is. They're all our children, in a way. And, it, and it's connecting at that feeling level, and, and, and as we have been talking about so frequently together, to, to move the mind out of its fixations. And in that, I, just coming to a um, conclusion with, with, rega- with regard to that and shaking the, the, fix, the fixation of, of images. And I just almost, in doing that, I would just like to present a kind of stark kind of contrast. And I picked up when I was in the library, the, uh, um, sorry, in the dining room, the Valley Advocate, which is one of the local um, newspapers, and it says here that two years ago, a local veteran became enraged at the dramatic visit made by Green Berets at one local high school. They arrived by helicopter and then ran in for an all-school assembly where they showed a few quick, til- quick killing techniques and then handed out recruitment literature. One of the students said, if the military needed me, I'd be the first one to go. Decked out in an Air Force airborne t-shirt resplendent with the skull and crossed machine guns and the motto, mess with the best, die with the rest. I've heard Ambrose said, I've heard what guys like this have to say plenty of times, and I subscribe to Soldiers of Fortune. So I know all about the killings and the grenades in the foxholes, but I don't mind dying. It's going to happen sooner or later. And either you die fighting for your country, or you die as a communist. Isn't that tragic? And so, a veteran, Vietnamese uh, uh, veteran, has been going into the schools and been speaking about what it's like to be fighting and killing. What it really means to be involved in that, to subscribe to that, to try to balance such pressure on people, and the reinforcement in any way of this uh, expression of a Rambo culture. 
And, and so rather, and so in, in somewhat in contrast for that, and then the whole spectrum of the world and, the, and all the degrees of violence and intensity which there, which there is and which expresses in, in different ways, I would like to just to read you a poem. And the tradition, Marxism, which has all its countless failings and criticisms and, and, uh, and all that's emerged out of that in various ways, important and, and tragic. I'd just like to read you a poem by the well-known uh, Chilean uh, Marxist who died in the earlier part of the 70s, Pablo Neruda. And one of his poems, which is somewhat appropriate for all of us in, the, in our life and in the days that we have spent here. And the poem is called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we will all keep still. For once, on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead, and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony.
So let us have a few minutes loving kindness together. Just sitting, being here and now. (coughs) Being aware of all of us in the room together. Of all the life around us. During the days that we've been here together, we've passed through many ups and downs, <coughs> pains and difficulties, quiet periods and fears, aggression and affection. just sitting here and now being together.
aware of the sounds of the day. A couple of months ago, when I was in India, a very poor Bihari woman went to see a friend of mine, Mary, who spent several years working with the poor women in the villages of Bihar, one of the poorest places on earth. The woman's husband had been killed. She had absolutely no money, four or five children. And she said, she was faced with two alternatives and was in desperate trouble. Either to become a beggar or to become a prostitute in the town in order to be able to feed the children. And she was filled with understandable conflict and torment. And sometimes in our lives, sometimes we become rather forgetful. Not of what we, forgetful of what we have, forgetful of the international importance of learning to live at a certain degree of simplicity and humility. Forgetful of the small ways and means, quietly, anonymously, we can give support to those who are working in the third world. Through a letter, through a check from time to time, through the purchase of goods from the third world, through making friends with people in the third world. So that we don't forget. We don't forget the woman in conflict. Compassion, loving-kindness is in the action, never anywhere else. May our parents live in peace and harmony. May our brothers and sisters live in peace and harmony. May our friends and relatives live in peace and harmony.
may our children grow into a world where peace and harmony touches them day by day. May all people live in peace and harmony. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings in all the realms, in all the universes, live in peace and harmony.